Here we are, June the 17th, uh, 2012, special Father's Day lecture. Ah, you know better than that, don't you? But I put it in here just because I'm a professional. Uh, lecture discussion number 70, and that's right, we are now on number 70. So if you have missed, and I, I always say this, uh, whether there's any that it applies to or not, so don't take it personal, if you have missed the first 69 of these Actually, there's 69 and seven-eighths of them. Uh, so if you've missed the first uh, 69 and, and change, then this one might uh, be a little bit confusing. They're all a little bit confusing. Some are a little bit confusing-er. Is that a word, confusing-er? It should be. It will be from now on. Uh, so we have put behind now, for now, the three kinds of eunuchs, and that, of course, was really funny, and I was saying that to uh, Lori's sister today, that uh, that I say it as uh, three kind of three kinds of eunuchs, the little children, and camels and needles. And so uh, again, let me repeat: the three kinds of eunuchs are not little children, camels, and needles. And there, it's, uh, that's the order of Matthew 19. But all that's behind us, and all that came with it for now. So that means that we are now semi-officially at Romans chapter five, and that begins. Romans chapter five does. You can go ahead and open there. Uh, that's not where we're going to be today, but that's where we're going to start. You should know that by now, right? We have to solve Romans chapter 5 first. You have to lay the foundation for it, or it will have you in difficulty. But Romans chapter 5, along with Romans 1.17, I'm sorry, of Romans chapter 5, verse 5.1, along with Romans 1.17, which you know is also Habakkuk or Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. That is the most powerful verse, I think, maybe in the entire New Testament that is not of Christ, but it is of Christ because he's the by faith part, the live fight part, and the justified part. So the just shall live by faith, extraordinarily powerful. That is Paul's thesis for the entire book of Romans. That is what he's trying to prove to you so that you don't have another view. Now, how did he do? Well, he proved it. How about the other view part? If I divided the earth up today in churches or beliefs or religious systems, and I had the just shall live by faith side, uh, Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4. Remember that Romans 1.17 is, uh, is quoted out of Habakkuk. So in order to understand it, you have to uh, understand Habakkuk, whichever. I pronounce it both ways and I get in trouble for either. How many 1.17, if I had to ask, percentages are there in the world. Churches that understand that verse is true. The just shall live by faith. Oh, I would say that much. 99.8% are works-based. They do not believe that the just shall live by faith alone. That's the way it's been throughout the, the, the history's and the centuries of the basic, or if you will, the, the religious systems and organizations that have risen up. So along with that verse, the just shall live by faith, and there is none righteous, no, not one, which is Romans 3.10, Psalms 14.1, Psalms 53, I believe. And Abraham believed God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, Romans 4.3, which is also 15.6. Of Genesis, along with those is this one now. Here comes another powerful thundering blow, if you will, to those who insist that somehow they're involved in their own salvation in a way that is valuable and not by just choosing, but by earning. So those who insist that salvation is earned or achieved by human effort in any way are human works. Here comes another punch to the face for you. Therefore, having been justified by faith. I want you to start. It's called the great therefore. Therefore. In other words, what has he assumed? What has Paul assumed at this point? He has assumed that he has proved beyond any doubt his thesis. His thesis being the just shall live only by faith. Only. It's exclusive. Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
which is the same as saved by belief. And again, let me repeat this. They're exclusive. You are either saved by belief or you are saved by something else. There is no other possibility. You cannot say that I have a belief system that has a works element to it and, and be biblical in any way because the Bible makes positive, purposeful exclusivity. I either am saved by faith or I am saved by works. If you say that you are saved by faith and works, then you are saying that you are saved by works. When you add works, it becomes works, complete works, all works. You are either saved by faith or you are saved by works. The theme of Romans, the just shall be saved by faith, belief. Either believe God or save yourself. Those are your choices. That is what he is intending for you to understand. And he has gotten to 5.1, and it is the great therefore. In other words, it is proven by what has come before it. Let me finish the verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What's that imply? You didn't have peace with God. So what were you? You were an enemy of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, notice, notice again, he has, he's assuming that you understand that it is no longer a debate. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, into this grace. Notice how he phrased that. In which we stand. Into this grace in which we stand. It cannot be made more clear. If you are saved, you are standing in grace. And you got there by faith. No other possibility that you can stand there at peace with God in grace except through faith. It's the great therefore. Note what God did not say, by the way, here. God did not say that you were in any way justified or saved by our human deeds, our human obedience to our human rules and traditions. They're valueless to salvation. He never says that, by the way, in all of Scripture. Never any place in Scripture does he say that our human-based works effort system saves us. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is of God. Human-based salvation is a not just a conundrum, but it's a contradiction. Human-based salvation is an invention of men. It's not the truth of God. God also does not say that we have peace with God through something we have done for ourselves by ourselves. How do we have peace? How do we stand in peace? It is by grace. What is grace? It is a gift. It is a free will Merciful gift cannot be earned, obviously, because there's infinite blood involved in that gift. We have no capacity to purchase infinite life-giving blood. At any, not, not a speck of it can we afford. It's that priceless. Obviously, it gives life, it gives peace, it gives eternal life. So God does never does he say that we have peace with him through something we have done for ourselves by ourselves. It is through Jesus Christ alone that we have peace with God. A peace accord has been reached, if you will. We are the enemy. He is the one who has made peace or he offers peace. So I have to have what? I have to have a peace treaty. I have to have it signed. Ask the obvious question now. Have you ever signed a peace treaty with God? We who were at war, we who were enemies of God, are declared to be at peace, Romans 5.10. The obvious questions just start to fly out. Who signed the documents? Whose name? Whose signature is on the peace treaty? When and where was the peace treaty signed? 
Also, again, we stand in grace. We do not stand in law. You're not in peace with God by standing in law or standing in your own effort. And, and rejoice in hope. This is... I don't even know how to, to read this in the, as powerfully as it is. I'll do my best. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay? Notice that we do not rejoice in the deeds and efforts of ourselves. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the goodness of God, the person that God is. We rejoice. We are saved because He is good, because He is resolute, because He is infinite, He is able. It is His blood that is given to us. We do not rejoice in the goodness of ourselves or the glory of ourselves. We rejoice in the hope and goodness of God. It could not, could not be made more clear. The Holy Spirit through Paul, gave him this purpose. And he wrote it this way with the Holy Spirit giving it to him to end this debate. And again, how's it going for us? We, if I, there, there we are, there's the number of churches, I'll make a little dot. That's the number of churches representing the grace-faith side of this that understand what Romans 5 is. The overwhelming majority, this is all black over here. There are billions and billions and billions of people who died works-based. And again, if you have any works-based, you are all works-based. But it... it it's as clear as it can be. Romans 5 ends the, is the, the, the therefore. It ends the debate. It builds on Romans 4, 3, 2, and 1. Chapters 4, 3, 2, and 1. But as we know, as I said, there are many who declare otherwise, who don't believe God. Because again, your choice is to believe God or what? Save yourself. There's your choice. You're either going to save yourself or you're going to believe God that the only way to be saved is if He gives it to you, undeserved by you. But the overwhelming majority don't believe that. They don't believe God. They assert that God lies about salvation, about peace, about justice, about grace, ultimately about himself. God is the author of evil, they'll shout. They used to come here, as you know. And they would sit in the back, and after the church, they'd all run forward to tell me that God is the author of evil. And they would say that man has to save himself. And then they had a nice system for you to use. They'll provide you with. You can use their system, their design. It'll work great. And they'll say that God might have given his saving blood. But then what comes next? But. But. God may have provided his but. But. But it is up to us, us puny little humans, to keep ourselves safe. God wouldn't have thought of that. It never would have occurred to him that we would not be able to keep ourselves safe. And they want the power, by the way. They want the control over their salvation. They think they can choose it when they want, discard it when they want, and do whatever they want with it, and God is of no issue at all. We have the power, they will tell you. It is a conditional salvation. Conditional on what? on their system that they're selling to you. Buy one, get one free. And nothing is free, right? But the grace of God. Use our new system, blah, 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 and on and on and on they go. And it rakes in the money, and it controls, and they have a huge multitude of sucker fishes. Millions of people buy into this. And they make themselves the leaders of these organizations that dominate the theology in this country today. It's overwhelming. There may be only one denomination that is maybe two tops that are salvation by grace left in this country. The rest are some kind of works-based system. Faith plus works. Belief plus works. Save yourself with our system. And in comes the money and in comes the control of all the sucker fishes. Rich little Pharisees then, the leaders, become very wealthy, 
Send your money to them. They will make sure that you're saved. And they become ultimately camels, don't they? And it's very hard for a Pharisee camel to be saved. That's where we just finished. Though with God all things are possible. Very hard for a Pharisee, a works-based Pharisee, to get through an eye of a needle. Though with God all things are possible. I've often wondered how anyone could read the book of Romans and conclude that mankind is able to save himself. I've just been stunned by it. The first time I read it, it was pretty obvious to me that man had no role in the keeping of his salvation. God not only gives you the salvation, he superglues it to you. He sews it into you. He makes sure there's no possibility. He holds it. He is the one that holds you into it. He passes you the basketball, if you will. Nice little clean bounce pass as you back cut to the... To the hoop, and, and, and he duct tapes the ball to you. And you're not going to get it stolen. How long, I say this all the time, how long, if you were responsible of keeping your basketball of salvation, how long would Satan pick it from you? Instantly. You'd hand it to him. We all would. We're all idiots. God has thought of that. His system of salvation has thought of eternal security. He's omniscient. But I've often wondered, how can you read the book of Romans and conclude that mankind is able to save himself and is not only able to save himself, but that somehow God is requiring him to do so? And I've wondered, how did this kind of thinking, this works-based thinking, survive doctrinally with the book of Romans right there? How did it make it as far as it has? How is it prospering? Because it is. You want to compare attendance? I can think of one denomination in this country that has almost a hundred million people going to. And they're all works-based salvation. Faith plus works. And if you have works, you have all works. You don't get a little, a little pollution. It isn't one apple. Nitroglycerin. It's uranium. It's nuclear. You drop some works in there and you just poisoned everything. So how did this kind of thinking survive? Even a shallow, cursory reading of the book of Romans destroys it. Why and how do these con men Pharisee churches exist? How does this happen? And well, it does and it is. And Ezekiel 13.8 sums it up really well. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Because you have spoken nonsense and lies, I am against you. What is the nonsense and the lie that they have to say in order for you to be saved by yourself? What must they say? They must say God is the author of evil and God is not good. Both are the same. Huh? They must say that. Ezekiel 13.7 You say, thus says the Lord, but... I have not spoken. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people. Ezekiel 13.9 Nothing could define futility more so than attempting to save yourself. I said recently, it's like trying to pull yourself out of quicksand by grabbing your hair with both hands and yanking. It makes no sense. It's futile. It's ridiculous. But yet it is overwhelming the doctrine of this country and the doctrine of the East. Pick an Eastern country, East Asian country. It's all some kind of works-based system, obedience-based system. Take the Middle East. It's all works-based. There is very little grace taught in this world today. How can you save yourself? How can you think that you will? You could not, as I said, define futility more so than attempting to do that. Heal yourself, protect yourself, pay the price of your sin with yourself and with your works or deeds. You would be speaking nonsense and lies, and you would be attacking the goodness of God, calling him a liar and refusing to believe him. That is where we have been, right? All of that. Here it is again in Romans 5, right off the bat. Therefore, he sums it all back up again before he moves on. Uh, apparently, though, as you know, this works-based system is a big moneymaker in the religion business. You get a nice car, you get a pension, you get health care, you get a nice house. 
I had somebody tell me a long time ago a, a little saying, and I modified it a little bit over the years, but uh, he liked to say that uh, he who dies in the best hospital is dead. As you know, I like to say he who dies with the most toys is dead. But both of them end, and then the judgment. So you can make a lot of money in the religion business. You can make a lot of money in the pastor business. There's some very wealthy pastors even in this city. They're extremely wealthy. I don't want to pick on them. Okay, I do. Your car, your house, your pension, your stuff will not impress the judge of all things. He's not going to be impressed, especially if you have lied about him to get it. You start saying that he's evil, that he is not good, and that you can save yourself, and you don't need him. Maybe you needed it the first time through, but after that, it's all you. You stand up there with that, that's not going to be helpful at your trial. Just saying. That's speaking nonsense. And they are speaking nonsense and lies about God in order to get physical stuff. Not going to work out. Hopefully they're listening. Okay, being that this is my traditional special Father's Day sermon, and since Roman 5 contains the truth about the typology of Adam, which is a fantastic subject, as you know, the key to understanding Adam, the typology of Adam, is to understand deep sleep, whether or not that's really death, and to understand that there are two trees. If you don't understand that I have two trees, and that this tree was taken from by Adam when he was not deceived, he was not deceived, you never can make a case that he is with Eve and that he's deceived because that would be contrary to Scripture. He is the federal head. I know you'll see it in Genesis and you'll think I'm wrong, but bring a lunch. Okay? So I got two trees. The key is, is that this tree was taken from by Adam after Eve took it. Eve is deceived. He was not. I'll tell you that he waited three days and three nights before he ate that apple. That's just my position. I can defend it. But the key to the whole thing is he did not go to the tree of life. If you don't have that, you will never understand the typology of Adam. It wasn't one decision made by Adam. It's two decisions. That's important. The question immediately becomes... Why didn't he go to the second tree? So you have the two contrasts going. You have the one man, that is Christ, and you have the one man, that is Adam. That is coming up in Romans 5. And we'll cover it extensively. I have done so many, many times, as you know. And it requires significant study to understand. And so in order to understand Romans 5, where do we go? Well, the first place we go is Exodus 20. That might surprise you, but not if you've been here before. It's something that uh, we've discussed previously very often, actually. Um, How many of you were here when I have done the last part of Exodus 20? One. That's why I have to keep kind of going back over things, because I drive people away on a regular basis. You're all aware. Okay. I would, I would laugh with you, except it's totally the case. And it's not nearly as funny as it used to be. Now, before we read Exodus 20, 18 through 26, it, it should always be remembered that there's an order here. I have the Ten Commandments. Okay? And then I have the law of the altar. And then what do I have? I have the law of the Hebrew slave who plainly says that he loves his wife and he loves his family, and he takes the piercing at the gate, right? So I have the law of the Hebrew servant or slave, if you will. So we've covered that typology of Christ that's there. Obviously, Christ is the Hebrew slave that plainly says he loves his family and he will be pierced for their sake, right? And the law of the altar is before that. And after that, as you know, is the law of the rebellious son, which took us into... Uh, James 2, and solves James 2. If you don't understand the law of the rebellious son, you will not figure out why James 2 says what he says. If you don't recognize that the law of the altar is between the Ten Commandments and the law of the Hebrew slave, the law of the altar will not make sense. It is the transition, if you will. It's the bridge. i, I got a statement here I, I wrote. Exodus 20:18 through 26 is after... Exodus 20, 1 through 17, and before Exodus 21, 1 through 26. 
And that should seem like a great big, oh, duh, and I should be mocked because that's obvious. But it isn't. The law of the altar is the transition between the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments needs a transition to get to the law of the Hebrew slave. And the law of the altar is that transition. It is that bridge. Okay? Hopefully that all makes sense. If it doesn't, it's okay. We will be going over it hundreds and hundreds of times until you are sick of it, like usual. You have to sit in the front row because she laughs at almost everything, doesn't she? The rest of you don't, and she's very encouraging. Thank you for visiting, Deborah. Thank you for bringing her. If you can't come, can you at least make a recording of yourself? And I'll use that in the front row. I'm very, very big in Finland and Australia, and I hope they're picking this up. I really do. <laughs> the rest of these people are very cynical and bitter, and they don't laugh. And I'm very funny, aren't I? Yes! Please tell them all. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Hilarious, Seth. <laughs> Seth, Seth knows I'm hilarious, but uh, he doesn't have the same definition that you do. We'll, we'll discuss that as we go on. Okay. Here we go. Exodus 20, uh, 18 through 26. Now. So let's read it together. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. Now I know that right off the bat, because I've taught this so many times, most of you think you are imagining this and you are absolutely wrong. You're not even close. You think you have got it and you don't. If the percentages are typical, there's not one of you who has got it right. So we'll start with that. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. What's immediately the obvious question right there? Let's just take that one verse. Do not fear, for God has come to test you. What's the test? Did they be a true or false? Multiple choice? Am I going to pass? There's a hundred questions right there. Don't fear. You're going to be tested. <laughs> Those don't seem to fit together, do they? But they do. And that's the point. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the law of the altar. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. Why is he going to say this to the children of Israel? Because of the thunderings, the flashes, the, th the trumpet, the smoking, and the test. We've got to have a law of the altar. Because we have had the Ten Commandments and we've got all of this stuff, we've got to have the law of the altar. That's critical now. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen what, that I have talked with you from heaven. Oh my goodness! What's happening? He has talked to them from heaven. Where's heaven? Yeah, how far away? What's it require? Let's, de let's define heaven. Is heaven physical? The answer would be, maybe. Maybe. Okay. How, how many times do we see heaven? <laughs> if we do see it, we don't notice it. I have talked with you from heaven. What I'm trying to talk to you about now is uh, we're headed where? The difference between the ultimate reality and the physical reality, right? You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Why does he start there? An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it 
your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it, build on it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. What, what's that? Why did I go to Exodus 20? It's works. If you work on your salvation, you have profaned your salvation in the sense, now don't misunderstand me, because I know there are verses that imply that we work out our own salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is that don't put anything of you on the altar. This is salvation we're talking about. Don't profane salvation. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar. In other words, I'm going to have a salvation system, and you're not going to be able to get up there. Don't build any steps. Don't make it out of any... I want it to be made out of earth. What's earth? How did he make us? It's going to have some humanity in it, isn't it? But it's his altar. Don't go up there. Why not? You're naked. Don't go into the Holy of Holies without the smoke, without the sacrifice. Don't go on the altar. You're naked. You go up on the altar naked. What's going to happen? That's right. Boom, lack a lack a lack. You're in big trouble. Don't do it. That's crazy. Crazy town. All right. As usual, now let's make a list. So you got to look at what we what we just did in order to understand it. First thing that's on our list is, that, is to try to lay out this scene for you. I have thunderings, don't I? What's the obvious question? What are thunderings? Do you think that this is describing thunder and lightning? If you do, don't raise your hand, because you would be wrong. I have lightning flashes, or I have light Flashes. If you think that you have heard these thunderings and seen this light, you're wrong. You have seen earthly thunder, or heard earthly thunder, and you have seen earthly lightning. That's not what's happening here. Where? Who's here? God's here. Did he come by himself? How did he get here? What did he bring? We know, this is my favorite part, that is why no church music system or music staff can exist without a trumpet section. It cannot. It's not biblical. <laughs> got to have trumpets. Got to have brass. The old joke we, we all make in the trumpet department at Cliffside Community Chapel is that when God wants to get your attention, he did not use an electric guitar, sorry, Nick. Not really. Fake sorry. When God wants your attention, he uses a trumpet. I am capable, an old man of, in my 90s, I am capable of reaching 130 dB on that trumpet by myself. You add Seth and Ken to that, and we win. I don't care how many guitars you might have. You're, you're, you're depending on electricity. I can end that. I... I have that capability. But that trumpet's very important. What's the obvious question on a, on a trumpet? I'm going to get ahead of my list here, or my stuff, and I'll start running around. I know. But what's the obvious question? Who's playing it? Why? What's he playing? I'll repeat most of that in a minute, because it's in my text, and I just diverted from it. There's smoke And they're trembling. They're in great fear. And they stand far off, don't they? Trembling. And they're afar away. Okay? Why are they afraid? What are they afraid of? I didn't spell trembling correctly today. What are they afraid of? Getting blowed up. That's right. That's what they're afraid of. And so they're getting away. We're not going near the mountain. We're going to die over there. 
And we can't deal with what? That's right, the noise. What's the noise coming from? That's right, the trumpet. Okay. And they say to Moses, Moses, you go. Go, Moses. Go. Go. You go. You'll be fine. What could possibly go wrong? There's a bunch of smoke. A bunch of noise. This thundering stuff. Explosions. You go, Moses. You go and you become the what? The intercessor for us. So you see him as a type of Christ here. You go, Moses. And I hope it works out for you. You come back. We'll listen. Let not God speak with us lest we die. If he speaks with us, we're going to die. And then right after that, he says, don't get up on the altar. Because if you get up on the altar, you're going to be naked. And what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You need what? An intercessor. The big question becomes why. So the Ten Commandments have just been given, and what have they been given with? Four signs accompany them. Thunderings, light flashes, trumpet, and smoke. Those are your four signs of the Ten Commandments. And they got the desired result. One thing was obvious to the people of Israel, profoundly so. One, they needed an intercessor. And two, if they didn't have one, they would die. That's doctrinally as perfect as you can get, right? So here, immediately, it's important to realize that something very complex is being communicated. You've got to understand the implications of these four signs. God, if you will, and this is not correctly said, it's said for your benefit from a human perspective, uh, knowing that the omniscience of God is a difficult challenge for most of humanity. So I'm going to say it incorrectly, but I know better. If you know the rule, you can violate it occasionally, right? That's my, that's my uh, logic for driving. God could have chosen anything. That's not true. He's omniscient. That means he's, he will always perfectly decide. But if you will, think of it that way. Any four signs... And these are the four that he gives, that he wants. He wants thunderings, he wants light flashes, he wants a trumpets, and he wants smoke. And by the way, how much smoke was there? It's enough to make it totally dark and completely cover the mountain. So, now that's a lot of smoke. And he could have done anything, but these are the four that follow the giving of the Ten Commandments, or that accompany the giving of the Ten Commandments. And probably the latter is most accurate there. They accompany the giving of the Ten Commandments, and they each have great significance. They are four parts of a whole. They are teaching us something. I have to figure out what each part means, then I put it together, and I get an entire meaning from those four, four parts. But in any event, knowing that this occurred, this, this giving of the Ten Commandments occurs on what day? You get to pick one out of seven. You've got seven days that it occurred on. What day did it occur on? I know what day. It occurred on the feast day of? Trumpets was a very good guess, but wrong. It occurred, occurred on Shavuot. What is Shavuot? That's weeks. Okay, the feast day of weeks. We will mistakenly say Pentecost. But Pentecost is, a, is a, a Gentile word. It is not a Hebrew word. This is the word you want. That is the meaning you want. It's seven times seven plus one from the crossing of the Red Sea. That's where the Penta comes, or the 50. So knowing that it occurs on the fourth feast day of the Lord's seven feast day is essential to figuring out the four signs, as is Acts 2. This, you see, as soon as you know that it occurs on Shavuot, uh, that it is 40 or 50 days from the day that they went through the Red Sea, or also 50 days from the day of Christ's crucifixion, then all you have to do is go to the New Testament, you count 50 days, and you find something else happened. What else happened? He repeated these four signs. Acts 2, if you were going to say Acts 2, you get an A. Yes, were the four signs, except they don't, he doesn't call them by the exact same names, but they are the exact same signs, aren't they? And I'll try to confuse you now, because that's, well, that's what I do. 
Okay, so I'm going to put it over here. Uh, one, two, three, four. And Acts 2, I have sound from heaven. Okay, I have four signs. They are the identical signs. I have a rushing, mighty wind. I have fire. And I have languages. That last part is confusing to a lot of people. What it means is that I have people, in this case I have uh, Galilean Hebrews, who stand up and who speak Galilean Hebrew. And because this is a feast day, or what's called a pilgrimage uh, feast day, all the Jews are required to go to Jerusalem. And these Galilean Hebrews stand up and they speak. And all the different countries that are, are... Represented there are listed, which means none of these people spoke Galilean Hebrew. Most of them spoke no Hebrew at all. And they would hear what these Galilean Hebrews would say in their own language. In other words, if they would stand up and speak, uh, pick a language, Ethiopian, Finnish, I would hear Spinard English. Okay? I lived in Hawaii, as you know. Pretended to educate myself there, did very little of that, but nonetheless, I use it as an excuse. Uh, and there's a pidgin English there. Galilean Hebrew would be very similar to that. It would be a truncated uh, dialect that isn't even really recognizable sometimes by people who speak the actual Hebrew. But there you go. I have the identical 1, 2, 3, and 4 equal A, B, C, and D. What's your assignment right now while I keep going? That's right. Assign the right names to the right places, right? Knowing that Exodus 20 is part of a wedding ceremony, and it is. See, what's going on at Exodus 20 is I have a mountain. I, I put all kinds of smoke and fire and thunderings and trumpets. Isn't it obvious, by the way, which one is the trumpet? That's right. The sound from heaven is the trumpet. My goodness, wouldn't we expect that? Once more, how can you have a church without a sound from... How can you do it? Ah, yes. You're going to be on stage if you keep this on. (laughs) Okay. But knowing that Exodus 20, the trumpet and the smoke and the mountain and the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are a contract, a marriage contract. All of this, both Acts 2 and Exodus 20, all both of those are marriage ceremonies. You have to know that. It's a wedding ceremony. How's the bride doing right now? She has finally seen the husband and she's run. (laughs) So she's off to the side going, I'm not so sure about this. We have a problem. Hey, but it is a marriage ceremony, as is Acts 2. If you don't understand that Acts 2 is in the context, if you will, of a betrothal ceremony, a Hebrew wedding ceremony, then you will miss the true meaning of it. I have two brides, if you want to think of them that way. It's symbol, it's symbolism, I understand that, typology. The one is the wife of YHVH, the other is the bride of Christ, Israel, and the church. You need to know that. The church is in uh, the betrothal system, and the wife is in the marriage system, if you will, or Israel is. The, the church is in the betrothal uh, symbol, and Israel is in the uh, marriage symbol. And, of course, as you recognize, a divorce has occurred, and I have to have a punishment, and I have to have a remarriage. And that's all happening to the nation of Israel. As we live today, we have seen them begin to come back, and they are headed towards the remarriage ceremony. Failure to perceive the marriage context of Exodus 20 and Acts 2 is to completely, utterly miss the meaning of both passages. If you don't know those are marriage ceremonies, you're going to be lost. You're off the rails in the ditch. But I'm digressing there, as usual, no surprise. But while I was ranting, hopefully you have connected this. Sound of heaven I gave to you. Sound from heaven. Clearly trumpet. See, if you could go through life and be, say, a framing carpenter and a trumpet player, how much better, how much more obedient could you get? That person is a genius. (laughs) Okay. 
Sound from heaven, obviously, trumpet player. Rushing mighty wind. Which one is it? Over here. How many vote for A? Don't raise your hand here. Don't do it. How many vote for B? Don't raise your hand. How many of you think rushing mighty wind is trumpet and I'm wrong about the sound from heaven? Yeah, they are. How many think it's the smoke that fills the room? The rushing mighty wind fills the room, doesn't it? Just like the smoke fills the holy of holies. How about the fire? Fire is what? Light, sure. And languages are the thunderings. Very few people understand the thunderings is language if you study the Hebrew. Okay? That becomes very important. That's how you began. How did you do? Do you have that figured out? Pretend. Obviously, the sound from heaven matches the sound of the trumpet. A trumpet is blown in both places. Both places I have trumpets blowing. Again, all that flood of obvious questions. How loud do you think that trumpet was? Is enough to make the bride run and get afar off? How far off do you think is afar off? How far do you get away from Chernobyl? If you're the bride, if you hear the siren, you're running. How many miles did they get before they finally said, okay, Moses, you go, we'll, we'll wait right here. That mountain's going to blow, baby. How close do you get to Mount St. Helens? And you have no idea. Those are very small examples of what this was really like. How loud was the trumpet? How many trumpets? Who's playing the trumpets? What's being played? This is a mixing. It is a blending. It is the ultimate reality with the physical reality. If you conclude that the angelic host is blowing trumpets... What have you done? What door did you now open? What is now implicated by that? If I say, and I had this discussion not too long ago with someone knowing I was coming here. If I say, I see an angel and I hear him blow on a trumpet, what have I just said about the ultimate reality? Because in order for me to hear what's required, I'm physical. What do I need to hear? I have to have air pressure. I have to have the movement of the air. I have to have a frequency. It's a physical, it's physical. And then my ear here absorbs that information and sends it to my brain, and the brain converts it into chemicals. And the firing of, of brain uh, particles, neuron. And my mind interprets all that chemical and light information and assigns meaning to it. So in order for a non-physical being to interact with me, what is required to where I can hear that trumpet? How's he playing it? Does he have valves? What make and manufacturer? Where's the trumpet shop? Can I get one? If you conclude that the angelic host is blowing the trumpet, there's consequences to concluding those kinds of things. If a spiritual being can be heard, sound waves were created by him. He has got to intermix with the physical reality. And it has to be interpreted by a human mind in the physical realm. Again, I have to assign meaning to it. That, that can also um, be the case with the, if I can see the angelic being playing the trumpet, then he has to reflect light to me, doesn't he? For my eyes, which are just lenses, it's just a chemical process, an electrical process that gets into my brain and that my mind evaluates, right? Substance dualism. And I can see a spiritual being reflect light. I'm a human in a physical reality using physical processes. In other words, did the nation of Israel, this multitude, millions of running brides, if you will, see? This is the classic running of the bride right here. They took off. Did the nation of Israel, millions of people, see the angelic host that came to Mount Sinai? I think it's obvious that they did. Because what is this? This is a wedding ceremony. And the groom has come to marry Israel. It's symbolic. Don't confuse. Don't think it's literal. It's not. So what did the angelic host look like? Why were they there? One of the four signs is the revealing of the ultimate reality to the wife of God. 
And if you conclude that, prepare to defend it. Why would he do that? Why would such a sight and what would such a sight and sound cause? In this case, it caused tremendous fear of imminent death. He did not come alone. He doesn't come alone except as, as himself in the form of humanity, right? Except when he added humanity. He came with the angelic host. They like being around him. And there are millions and millions, if not billions of them, and it caused tremendous fear. And I submit that, as usual, the sound of the trumpet was what? Painful. I was prepared to demonstrate, but I'll save that for another day. That's pretty much uh, for the immediate family. I specialize in painful trumpeting. The neighborhood is all aware that the other day Christopher told me, he said, we have the tallest house. It looks like the Adams family house, by the way, don't, don't. But we have this, this really goofy house that's falling down because I can't fix it, even though I have every skill imaginable to do so. It costs money. I am up in the third floor. It's a loft with the window open. Christopher rides his bike back and forth uh, from his work. When do you hear me? Do I reach Lake Otis? Yeah. So I can produce very painful trumpeting. Okay. Okay, how far we got? And I see the time. The people of Israel, the wife of God, saw and heard something that was magnificent. Magnificent. They saw and heard the ultimate reality. They saw what from heaven is. It was not, not a lightning storm up against the Chugach Mountains. It wasn't a, a guy in a car with a booming bass. It's not what happened, or the typical thunder. Everyone there, millions had heard and seen lightning and thunder before. They had heard trumpets. They saw smoke, same as us. Erase that from your thinking. This was beyond our imagining. This was God himself coming to his wedding. And God brought his throne, Ezekiel 1. Read Ezekiel 1. See how he travels. He doesn't travel with an overnight bag. He doesn't come alone. It's a huge deal. And they got to see it and hear it and feel it. So, that's where we will be next week. As we decipher profaning the altar and understanding what each one of those four signs mean and what they mean together. Let's rise and be dismissed.